Thanks, Lindsay. So Lindsay did a real good job of kind of laying the groundwork um, as far as definitions and why we do these various tests on gamma cameras. And I'm going to go into a little more detail and talk about how exactly we perform these. Um, in addition to talking about cameras, I uh, want to talk about uh, some other equipment in our lab, such as dose calibrators and survey meters that you've heard about earlier. Uh, but I want to talk about the quality con control procedures that we do on those as well. So lots of reasons we do those quality control procedures. <clears throat> You've heard about those. Um, things can and will go wrong on all of these pieces of equipment. And you know what we need to keep in mind is we test them usually in mornings, or we test them once a week, or we'll test them once a month. But they can go bad at any given time. So we um, we uh, just need to keep our eyes open. Uh, you know, at all times, just to see if there's things you know things that are thrown out of us that they aren't. Uh, allow us to see, sorry about the squeaking, allow us to um, see that they're not operating properly. Um, so as I said, I want to talk about gamma cameras. Uh, I want to talk about planar quality control and move in and talk about the spec quality control procedures that we do. I want to talk about those calibrators and other equipment in our labs that we should be doing routine testing on. Uh, planar camera quality control. Now, Lindsay talked to you a bit about ring artifacts. And the point to be made, if these planar quality control procedures do not pass, our spec quality control procedures are not going to pass. So if these aren't good, we don't even move on and do the other ones. That's where we need to bring in service engineers to, to take a look at the equipment. As far as planar quality control procedures, those include energy peaking, which we should do on a daily basis, uniformity testing, that we should do on a daily basis, linearity and resolution testing that we do on a weekly basis, those are our bar phantoms, and then a sensitivity test uh, is suggested that we do on a weekly basis. Now those first three tests, energy peaking, uniformity testing, and bar phantoms that we do weekly, um, whoever is accrediting your lab, whether it be the ACR, or the ICANL, they're going to require that we do those. So sensitivity testing is something that's in the ASNIC guidelines, but sensitivity testing is not looked at by the ACR. We're not forced to do it. It used to be in the ICANL guidelines, but they are no longer uh, enforcing that to be performed. <clears throat> um, so energy peaking, what exactly are we doing? Well, when you heard about um, pulse height analyzers earlier, uh, what we are verifying is that the pulse height, height analyzer's energy window is, is correctly centered over the photo peak of the isotope which we're imaging. Um, it's best performed five useful field of views from an, from an uncollimated camera with a point source. And Lindsay explained the reasoning, you know, why, why we would perform this this way. Now, in all reality, a lot of times it's not done this way. Um, it can be done with a sheet source on a collimated camera. You can use a point source on a collimated camera, but you start getting, getting into interactions with the collimator and other variables that, that can actually get in the way. And it's, it's just not the best way to do it. But the truth is, it's a lot faster to do it these other ways. The bottom line is the technologist needs to check these um, day, on a daily basis, and if not several times a day. Um, the newer camera systems do this automatically. They will automatically move the, uh, and, and center the pulse height analyzer over the peak. Um, it doesn't always do this correctly, and some of the cameras don't automatically do it, so it does need to be checked uh, regardless of, of your equipment um, at least once a day. Uniformity testing, that's our daily floods. Um, it's best performed five useful fields of views 
from the uncollimated camera. Uh, most commonly, it's performed with a Cobalt 57 sheet source on a collimated camera. Um, there are some advantages to doing this this way. You've heard about the advantages of using the five useful fields of views, using a point source away from a uh, from a uncollimated camera. If you do it with the collimators on, one, it's going to be much faster, and two, you're also going to look at the integrity of the collimator. So if the collimator would be damaged for some reason, the advantage to doing it with the collimator, uh, with a cobalt sheet source, is you get an evaluation of the collimator. You know, moving patients onto a bed with a wheelchair or a stretcher, they bang into the camera head, the collimator can easily actually be damaged. Obviously, lead's a fairly soft metal, so they are vulnerable to, uh, to damage. Um, what we do in our lab and what a lot of labs will actually do is perform these extrinsically, meaning using the cobalt sheet source on a collimated camera on a daily basis, and then we'll perform them intrinsically on a weekly basis. That's where you take the collimator off, you use a point source, and actually image the specific isotope. So we'll use a technetium point source, we'll use a thallium point source. Times when we're utilizing iodine-123, we'll do an I-123 intrinsic flood. So again, they're a lot faster when you leave the collimators on. If you do a daily flood with a sheet source, it's generally about a five-minute procedure. <clears throat> with the systems, you know, you can put the dual-headed systems in 180 degrees from each other, put the sheet source in between, and perform the test on both heads at the same time. You have this all finished in five minutes. If you, if you take the collimators off, a lot of times you have to put what they call plexiglass decoys over top of the camera to protect it, or elsewise, otherwise it won't let the camera move. Uh, it can turn the five-minute procedure into a 30 or 40-minute procedure by the time you get the collimators off, decoys on, and replace those when you're finished. So um, it is a longer procedure to do it intrinsically, and again, that's why we typically just do this on a weekly basis. A little more detail about the extrinsic uh, testing or the, or the testing with the collimator. So we use this cobalt 57 radioactive sheet source. Uh, we place it on top of the detector, again with the collimator on, and we acquire an image. For small field of view cameras, it's typically done for three million counts. And for a larger field of view, uh, we'll do five million counts. So this gives a similar count density uh, based on the side of the head. It is, uh, according to guidelines, we should be doing this utilizing a 256 by 256 matrix. And uh, we're going to do both a visual or a qualitative assessment, and then we're also going to do a quantitative assessment um, on these images. If you haven't seen a cobalt sheet source before, this is basically what they look like. So they're, so they're large sheets. Uh, you know, usually, you know, they're, they're definitely going to be big enough to irradiate the entire uh, field of view. They come in different sizes, anything to accommodate your smaller field of view cameras uh, up to the large field of view cameras that are used in general nuclear medicine as well. Uh, they're available in different amounts of activity. <clears throat> we don't normally jump up and buy a 20 millicurie sheet source because it will actually exceed the count rate capabilities of the cameras, but typically when we purchase these, they are um, purchased uh, as 10 millicurie sources. Um, Cobalt 57 has a 270-day half-life, so one of these sheet sources will last several years before it would actually need to be replaced. Uh, and they are costly, about, um, somewhere in the range of $3,000, but again, uh, they're going to be valuable for several years. And again, the alternative is doing this with the, you know, a sheet or a, or a technetium or a thallium point source, but the time it takes to draw it up, get collimators on and off, you're talking about you know, saving 30 or 40 minutes per day.
Um, so some of the tests that we do these, as I mentioned, we do a visual test, but we also want to do a quantitative test. And there's a couple of terms that I know Lindsay already introduced and went over, but just in reviewing these, um, what to keep in mind uh, and things that would be tested using these terms is when, when you see integral, integral means global or the entire useful field of view of the camera. Where differential uniformity talks about all, you know, depending on the camera, every five by one pixel area or five by five pixel area. So it looks for a hot pixel and looks for the lowest pixel within, you know, five pixels of that. So global, integral, differential, regional. Um, looking at the American Society of Nuclear Cardiology guidelines for both differential and, and integral uniformity, it, it should be uh, less than five and it's preferred to be less than three. And again, these are numbers that are on par with the, um, with the ICANL and the ACR as far as lab uh, accreditation. Um, in front of you is an example of a daily uniformity test or a daily flood. Um, you can see that it is uh, pretty uniform throughout the field of view. There is a square um, drawn inside one of the images that actually represents the useful field of view. Um, and inside of that square, what the camera is actually doing is looking for the hottest counts, uh, hottest count pixels and the lowest count pixels, and it then calculates the integral uniformity, which comes out to 2.74. So again, it's within the guidelines, and again, uh, you know, visually it, it looks good as well. Now, lots of things can make these uniformity uh, tests look bad. Um, there can be malfunctioning photomultiplier tubes, which typically you'll see a circle, just a circular black area inside the uniformity flood. Um, if it's acquired on, off peak, you will see all the PM tubes uh, in the camera. You will either see them hot or cold, depending if whether the camera is peaked above or below the, the isotope, and we'll look at those in the next slide. Or worst case scenario, it can be a cracked crystal. That's what's represented in, the, in this one here, which is the worst case scenario. Um, cracks in the crystal can basically happen two ways. One is that you know you have the collimators off. Typically, the collimator is going to protect the crystal, but if the collimator is off, the crystal is obviously a lot more vulnerable. So you know the collimator gets dropped on the camera head and is not set down there easily, or the camera is being moved without the collimator on and it. it bangs into something. The, the crystals are somewhat fragile, so they can be broken. Um, I've never seen one in our labs at Duke, but when I was actually in my training uh, the year before, I believe a technologist put a pinhole collimator on backwards, so smash the pinhole into the crystal. So it can happen. The other way it can happen is if there's a very fast, severe change in temperature in the room. So the temperature drops or goes up very quickly, it can cause a crack in the crystal as well. The bad thing is this is one of the most expensive fixes on the camera, and they're the fixes that aren't going to be covered by a service contract because it's going to be due to some negligence. So um, hopefully you'll never get to see that in your lab. Again, something else that can make these uniformity floods bad is when the camera is off peak. So if it's, uh, the PHA is above the peak, you will see photomultiplier tubes that look hot relative to the other areas of the field of view. And if it's below the peak, you will see the opposite. So the, the, the tubes will look cold compared to the other areas throughout this. So if you ever see this real tubey appearance, that is due to the camera being off peak during the uh, uniformity flood test. Moving on, so resolution and linearity. Again, this is a planar quality control procedure and commonly referred to as bar phantoms. 
Um, we perform these to document a couple of things. One is what is the spatial resolution and its change over time. So when we acquire this this week, we want to compare last week's and see if there's any difference. Can we still visualize all four of those quadrants? Or can we just see three of them like we did last week? If we could see three last week and we can only see two this week, then we have a problem. The other thing is to evaluate the ability to image straight lines. So obviously things can go wrong with the electronics, and instead of those quadrants looking straight lines, they will actually be slanted or squiggly lines, and, and we know that that's uh, obviously a big problem where we need to bring in service engineers to correct. Um, how do we perform this? Well, basically the same way that we do a daily uniformity flood, but we're gonna put this bar phantom in between the camera and, and the source, whether it be a point source without a collimator or whether it be a, uh, with a collimator utilizing a sheet source. So if we're utilizing the sheet source, we're gonna have the camera head, we're gonna put the bar phantom, and then on top of that, we're gonna put our sheet source with the radioactivity. Um, so Lindsay showed you some different um, linearity and resolution phantoms that are available. There's orthogonal ones, there's parallel hull ones. In most cases, we're using a four quadrant bar phantom. And as you saw, when, we look, when you saw that in the previous presentation, there are varying degrees of thicknesses and spacing between the lead in each of those quadrants. Uh, it starts out very small and it gets larger space in between them. What we typically do is rotate it. Every fourth time we do that, it should repeat. So when we do it next time, we're going to rotate it 90 degrees. When we do it the next week, we rotate it another 90 degrees, just so we're putting the various quadrants over the various heads, uh, various uh, positions on the camera head. Uh, so again, we acquire this, we look to see how straight the lines are, and also what are the smallest bars that we are able to discern. So again, just another look at a four-quadrant bar phantom. Actually, looking at this, you can see that the largest spacing is in this lower right-handed quadrant. And as we move um, clockwise, the, the spacing between the lead bars is actually getting smaller and smaller. On this particular one, we're able to discern the bars even in the smallest quadrant. And typically, you know, when, when these are purchased or when they're purchased with a camera, usually it's set that you can actually see three of the four. And, and being that, you know, it's, you know, but this one, we can barely make out the other ones. But again, when we do this next week, we, we want to see all four again. And again, looking that the lines are very straight. Sensitivity testing. Um, this one, again, is one that is not... Uh, you know, specifically addressed by the accrediting agencies, but definitely a good I idea to do for a couple of reasons. Um, it's, it's, first of all, it's going to document this document the system sensitivity as well as its change in sensitivity over time. And Lindsay went into this uh, in quite some detail. But where these can go bad, and where it's very important to do these, is is the sensitivity the same on two heads of a dual-headed system? So if you're getting more counts on one head that you are on another, you're going to see some, you know, some flashing. As, the, as, as you see your Cine go, data go around, it's going to become brighter uh, on, on one side than it is on the other. So that's the most important thing, looking to see that the two heads have the same sensitivity. Uh, but again, this is a weekly procedure. Simply, if you know the amount of radioactivity that you have, if you know how many counts you're setting the camera up to acquire, uh, it should take the same time from week to week. If it begins to gradually become longer, uh, you want to you know, bring in service and, and see what the reasoning is for that. So again, anything that fails planar-wise, when we go to do spec imaging, it's going to be made more obvious and become a bigger problem. So Lindsay, again, went through this ring artifact and how it works, but if, it's, if you have a non-uniform area, 
on a planar flood, <clears throat> you're gonna see it in various areas when we do a 360 degree acquisition. So moving on, so let's assume that all of our planar studies, our planar quality control looks good. We wanna move into SPECT quality control. So a couple of things we wanna talk about how we do those are center of rotation. Um, as Nick uh, has this down as a, as a weekly procedure, a lot of the, accre the accrediting agencies are fine with us doing this at least monthly. With one caveat, if any of you are involved with doing mobile imaging, where there's a camera that's mounted in the truck and is moving from place to place, or it's a digirad system that's, you know, that's going up and down and being transported, any time a system is moved from mobile imaging, it should be done following each move. So guidelines say to do it monthly. If it's mobile imaging, it should be done every time it's moved, which could be multiple times a day. Um, the other reason um, you, that you should do this is following service. So I've, I've only, I, I actually saw my fourth bad center of rotation in about 16 years this past week, and three of the four times it was done after service. A service engineer comes in, does some recalibrations on the camera, and just forgets to reapply this center of rotation correction, or once they do recalibrations on the head, they're then required to do a center of rotation correction, which isn't done. So, you know, service engineers are great. They fix most of our problems, but they can do things wrong that cause us problems as well. So always, you know, I'd strongly recommend that it's also done immediately following service. The other thing is uniformity correction. Uh, talk about that in, in a little more detail. And then talk about our plexiglass phantoms or what are commonly referred to as JZAC phantoms um, as well. So again, center of rotation is gonna check for an alignment area between the electronic matrix of the detector and the mechanical center of rotation. So again, anything we image, if we image 90 degrees from there, we expect that it's gonna be in the same place. And, a lot of, and, it, and it's not gonna be, so that's why we have these quote corrections. Some camera systems, when you check this on a monthly basis, it is going to just do a check. It's going to make sure that once that correction is applied, that it um, that it's uh, once the correction applies, that that is that it's correcting it. Um, it's not, remember, it's never going to be right without a correction being in there. With some of the systems, when we do this, um, it actually goes in and just does a new correction every month. Um, you know, expecting that there's going to be some gradual shifts. So sometimes it's just a check. Sometimes it's actually going to replace the correction that's actually there. Um, uh, like I mentioned before, do this after service as well. That's most probably when you can see these actually go bad. Um, what we see when we do a center of rotation acquisition, if we acquire it in a 360-degree ac acquisition, we see what's called a donut artifact. If it's just a 180-degree acquisition, you see a semicircle, or what's referred to as a tuning fork um, artifact. So on testing, if you see tuning fork or donut artifact, those are bad center of rotations. Um, Lindsay showed this before. Again, when we uh, are seeing anything, when we image it 180 degrees from, from uh, where the object is, it should be in the same place. So again, this is an offset center of rotation. And this point, if, it's, if we image it 180 degrees from where uh, it was first imaged, it should show up as a dot. But if it's offset, that's where you can see where we come up with this donut artifact. Um, so how do we do this? It's actually a very, very simple test. And, and um, you know, a lot of times when the accrediting agencies look at this, they want to see the numbers. Uh, and I, th I think the images go a lot more way and what I want to show you here. But the, the hardest part of doing a center of rotation test is getting your source set up. And it's very important that you have just a very small dot 
of radioactivity. So if you draw this up in a syringe, often you can have some activity that's left in the needle and some that's going to be in the, in, in the syringe itself. We always would change the needle for actually using a syringe as our source. Something that works very well in our lab and <clears throat> we've been doing for a, a couple of years is using a Q-tip and you have a syringe with activity and just have a, just a drop of the technetium on the tip of the needle and you just touch it onto the Q-tip and cover up the Q-tip basically and use that as your source and that usually makes a really fine point source to do center of rotation testing. You have to have the right, you know, and sometimes you're going to put two of the drops on the, on the end of the Q-tip. But you basically want to put this in a dose calibrator and see that you have about one millicurie of activity is what's recommended. So you're going to put this one millicurie point source on the bed of the camera and basically just do an acquisition. Um, you know, depending on the limitations of the camera, it's going to be a 360 degree or 180 degree acquisition, um, 60 projections per head, so um, more projections than we would typically do for a heart study, but just five or ten seconds of frame. So it's going to be very quick. It's going to take five, six, seven minutes, depending on your camera. And this is what we should have. So you can see the raw data up here. This is just the dot. It's, it's sitting there on the, on the table, and we're, we're imaging all the way around it. And here's our reconstruction, so it looks like a dot. And if it looks like a dot, that's good. Now just remember what happens is it starts to go bad and it's offset. When it's just a little bit bad, the dot's just going to be bigger than it would, than it would be if, if it were a correctly calibrated center of rotation. But as it becomes worse and worse, then it would turn into a donut artifact. So instead of seeing a dot, that's where we'd end up seeing a donut, um, specifically on these transaxial images. So, um, if, you're, if you're evaluating myocardial perfusion studies, and it seems like every single one of those heart studies that's coming through at rest and stress starts to look like there's a motion artifact in it, this shows you what happens to transaxial images, uh, myocardial perfusion images, when the center of rotation offset. So as it becomes more and more offset, we see more and more uh, of what looks like a motion artifact in our images. So, again, you know, if somebody, patients, when they move, they don't all move the same way. You do patient number one and they move, you know, you may see the septum that looks higher than the, um, than the lateral wall um, on the images, like you do here. The next patient you do moves a different way, it may look this way. But if a center of rotation is bad, you're going to see this same looking artifact on every single patient that you do. So keep that in mind if you see that, you may want to have the technologist take a look at the center of rotation. Um, so plexiglass spec phantoms. The, these first plexiglass spec phantoms were, were developed by a physicist named Ron Jazak, um, who, who actually worked at Duke and retired um, just about a year ago. But, the, but most people, when they refer to these plexiglass phantoms, um, refer to them as Jazak phantoms. And what these are is, is, you know, the size of these are usually about they're 16 or 18 inches high. And, and basically just a cylinder that has several things inside of it. So down at the bottom of the cylinder, there are, there are these plastic rods of varying degrees of thickness. As you can actually see, each of these segments um, becomes larger and larger. And when we image this, we want to see which one of these segments, uh, what, are, what is the smallest segments that we're able to see when we reconstruct this. The other thing that there are is there's a lot of area with, with no uh, um, plastic or whatever in it, and there's just going to be background technetium activity, and that's where we can actually evaluate uniformity. 
Um, and, the, and then these spheres also. These spheres, there's very large ones, and they go all the way down to pretty small ones. And again, what are the smallest spheres that we're able to discern once we acquire and process these images? So it, allow you, it allows us to look at these rods. We can see linearity, we can see resolution, and we can also look at uniformity when we acquire these uh, for spec. Now, for the, if your lab's accredited by the ICANL, they don't dictate that we have to do these, these phantoms necessarily. They're not, they're not going to want to look at these. But for the ACR, this is a very big part of lab accreditation. Uh, and they're very picky about exactly how these are done. So when we talk about these, for those of you who are ACR accredited, um, I'm going to go through their protocol because most of the time, uh, that's, when we're, that's when we're doing these routinely and submitting them for our lab accreditation. So what they dictate is we do these with the, with the highest resolution collimators that we use for, for acquiring patient studies. So it's typically going to be our high resolution collimators. Uh, we're going to put technesium activity inside of this. And in fact, ACR is going to want us to do this with technesium and to also do it with thallium. So we load this up with between 10 and 20 millicuries of technesium. For the, you know, if we're doing a technesium evaluation. And our goal is to have a count rate below 50,000 uh, counts per second. Uh, we acquire this in 128 by 128 matrix, and we're going to use a 360-degree acquisition. Um, we want 120 views, so that implies that we are going to do 60 steps for a dual-headed system imaging every three degrees. And... Um, you know, if we have a dual-headed system that allows us to put the heads in 180-degree orientation from one another, that's the way that they um, asked that it be acquired. And so using that count rate, if we have below 50,000 counts per second, we're somewhere between 45 and 50,000 counts per second. When we, acquire these, when we acquire this using 120 views, we should end up with somewhere around 32 million total counts. So we can acquire this for twice as long and make it look a lot better, but in order to have these done uniformly for ACR accreditation, they dictate that they be about 32 million counts total. Uh, as far as the radius of rotation, how far those heads are from the phantom itself, we should be as close to 20 centimeters as possible and acquire using a circular, circular orbit as opposed to uh, an elliptical uh, orbit. So here's an acquisition of a, of a plexiglass phantom. Um, and a couple of things we can see. So, so first of all, looking at the rods here. On this particular system, using, you know, this is pretty, when you talk about doing um, plexiglass phantoms, this is a low amount of activity. When physicists do this and want to, you know, a lot of times physicists do this and they want to see the best possible resolution and uniformity that I can see on that camera. So they'll have 40 millicuries in these phantoms and they'll scan them for over an hour. But, but we're limited to what we can do with the ACR. So th this is typically what we get with the 32 million uh, count acquisition. Um, in, in looking at this, we can probably see two or three of these segments of, of rods. Again, when we repeat this next month, we want to be sure that we can still see the same amount. Uh, the spheres, we can see most of them, actually. Um, you can argue that we can even see the smallest one here, so we can see all six of them. Clearly, we can see the largest ones. And something that's not real good, I want to point out in this one, is looking at the areas uh, in between these spheres or below the spheres where there really should just be background activity. You can kind of see this artifact here, and that's, that's not normal. We wouldn't like to see that. So after this acquisition, this camera was actually... Um, had some um, recalibrations done to make this go away. So those are the kind of things that we want to look at when we evaluate uh, these plexiglass phantoms. So again, is the uniformity 
the area where there's no spheres or rods look very uniform. Also, you know, a lot of this is comparing to the previous month and making sure that there's no change. High count extrinsic flood uh, field uniformity corrections, so something that is performed uh, as part of doing spec. So just like the center of rotation offset correction, these center of rotations are never exact really with cameras, so there's a correction there. And something else that is assumed when we do spec imaging is that the efficiency of photon detection across um, a field is uniform, and it's not. Uh, there's impurities in the crystals that are in the cameras. Um, there are slight variances in the PM tubes. So, so it's not exactly uniform across the field of view of a camera. So what we actually do, what the, what the cameras require us to do, is to require to acquire correction floods. And what correction floods are are basically mirror images of what you see on an image. So you have an image that has low counts here and high counts here. When you acquire this correction flood, it makes a mirror image of that. So it's going to add counts to the low count areas, and it's going to subtract counts away from the high count areas to make the whole field of view look uniform. So this is always done in the background. So these get acquired uh, for usually about 100 million counts for each head. So it's a pretty long acquisition. Basically, a sheet source is put on the camera, and a four or five, acquis four or five hour acquisition is actually done. Uh, using a 256 by 256 matrix. And the application of this correction is done in the background. So most of the cameras actually do this on the fly. Uh, as the spec acquisition is happening, it just automatically applies this, correct, um, this correction to each, each one of the views. Uh, some systems will actually finish the acquisition, and you can see a lot of images spinning across the screen, screen, and that's where it's applying this flood field correction. But most of the time, this happens in the background. You don't know what's happening, but um, we usually acquire these according to camera manufacturer recommendations. Uh, in our institution, our service engineers uh, reacquire these on a, on a quarterly basis as long as there's no problems with the system. Uh, you know, anytime there's problems with the system, they of course get, get um, reacquired. But again, we like to do them quarterly uh, even without problems as part of our preventive maintenance uh, program for the cameras. Um, so here's a couple of spec acquisitions. So um, what if we did um, this rest acquisition on this patient first, we came back and then did the stress acquisition on this patient, and then the rest acquisition on patient number two was done um, you know, in a row. So looking at the, look at these um, long axis images here. So you see what looks like an artifact, motion artifact, and then here's the next patient, then you see this artifact. Would you worry about your center of rotation? Yeah. Actually, Look at the way it is, though. On one patient, the septum's higher than the lateral wall. On the other patient, you have a lateral wall higher than the septal wall. So I would think, in most cases, this is actually due to patient motion. If the center of rotation offset is there, it's going to look the same way on all of them. Um, you know, now, there can be some things where the patient moves on one and another, so you have a bad center of rotation and patient motion on one. But you know, typically, if your center of rotation is bad, that offset that you see on those transaxial images is going to be the same on every single patient. It's not going to be, look different on one patient to another. All right, well, that's enough talking about cameras. Now we want to move on to some of the other equipment that we have in our labs and the quality control testing that should be performed on those pieces of equipment on a regular basis. So survey meters, we obviously, you heard about radiation safety earlier, and what um, either the NRC or the states require us to do is on a daily basis 
following the completion of all of our patients, a survey meter should be taken around all, la all the rooms which radioactivity was used and, and basically verifying that there's no contamination. Uh, we use these survey meters and they're called Geiger counters or Geiger-Mueller counters, GM counters. Here are lots of different terminology for these, but on a daily basis before we use this, we should do a couple of things. Um, typically these run on nine volt batteries and there will be a uh, switch on the, on the detector that we will turn the battery and it's basically going to tell us whether or not that battery is uh, within operating range. If the battery power is too low, Obviously, we just need to replace it, the battery, or take it out of service. And the other thing we want to do is make sure that the um, uh, meter actually responds to radioactivity. So, you know, you can use various things. We have a, a cesium-137 source that has a 30-year half-life, so it'll last, uh, last the whole career, basically. But you just take the survey meter, put it over the radioactivity, and very simply, does it or does it not respond to radioactivity. You know, these are very fragile um, uh, pieces of equipment. If the probe of these is dropped, you know, from, you know, waste level, if you're walking around with one of these and drop it, most probably it is going to break it and it's not going to work. But, you know, is this responding to radiation? Just very simple, yes or no. And typically we have a check sheet on there. You know, is the battery with the, the batteries within range? Check. Um, the, the monitor is responding to radiation? Check. Very simple. Uh, additionally, the certifying bodies require that this be calibrated on an annual basis. And that's more in depth. Not just is it responding to radiation, but is it responding accurately to radiation on all of the various settings that are on that survey meter. So is it working on the .01 setting? Is it working on the times 1, the times 10, the times 100, etc.? And this has to be done again on a daily, on an annual basis, and typically it's shipped back to the, either the manufacturer or it's done by the uh, radiation safety groups that we have uh, doing our radiation safety, um, uh, running our radiation safety program uh, in our labs. So the dose calibrators, um, most of us have dose calibrators in our labs. There are ways around not having it, you know, just doing decay corrections if you're buying from a central pharmacy, but most of us have dose calibrators in our labs, and there is a whole list of tests that we should be doing on dose calibrators to make sure that they're operating properly. Those uh, include background testing, uh, voltage testing, and then uh, accuracy, constancy, linearity, and geometry testing. So. Uh, background testing is very simple, and it's just what it says. We want to make sure that the background activity is not, um, you know, is within acceptable limits. So just by going up and looking at that dose calibrator, you don't want that dose calibrator to say, you know, uh, 0.05 millicuries in there. And that can happen a couple of ways. One is that there's, there's unshielded sources in the radio, in the hot lab where that dose calibrator sits. And the other reason is that somebody contaminated the inside of, of the chamber of that dose calibrator, which happens a little more frequently. There's a plastic, um, you know, um, sleeve that basically um, is dropped inside a dose calibrator and basically shields the, the, the detector itself. So it's basically just a, a plastic sock that fits down inside of that chamber. And, you know, we have, we have a backup in our lab. So if that gets contaminated, we, the background looks high we'll just replace that plastic sleeve that goes down inside. We don't have three of them, so the techs do have to be careful. But anyway, you know, that can be cleaned off actually and replaced, or the background setting can be adjusted to, to uh, correct that. 
But anyway, so we're looking to make sure that that background reading should obviously say zero before we drop a patient dose inside of it. Voltage test, just like we do a battery check on our, on our um, uh, survey meter, we want to do a voltage check on our dose calibrator and basically just seeing that it's operating within the, the manufacturer's recommended range. We push the voltage button, see what the voltage is and whether or not it falls within the acceptable range. Now these other tests are a little more, little more uh, complicated than the, than the background and the voltage test. And so first is an accuracy test. Accuracy tests, accuracy tests should be performed on an annual basis. And what is dictated as far as an accuracy test is that we have two separate shield radiation sources that are greater than 50 microcuries, and one of those two sources has an energy between 100 and 500 keV. Uh, so most commonly, the two that you will see uh, labs use is a cobalt 57 one. Um, it has, again, a 270-day half-life. Um, it is 122 keV. So that satisfies, that, uh, that satisfies the 100 to 500 keV regulation. The other one that tip people typically use is cesium-137. The reason that we use that is that, again, it has a 30-year half-life. Uh, you buy one, it's going to be good till you retire. Um, you know, so what happens with the cobalt one is eventually that one's going to decay down to less than 50 microcuries and it's going to have to be replaced. But, but it, it has a fairly long half-life and again, it, it's going to last six or seven years, but it will have to be replaced once it gets below 50 microcuries. But these are typically purchased, uh, the, the cobalt is typically purchased at 10 millicuries, so, so you get several years out of it actually. Uh, now, the trick about these sources, you can't just make them up or get them from anywhere. They have to be traceable to the National Institute of Standards and Technology. So what it basically means is it comes with a certification saying it's, it was exactly this many millicuries on this given date. And so what happens is we, on an annual basis, drop these sources into our dose calibrator. And we, the, the decay correction, so it, we knew that it was 10 millicuries on two years ago, and today we do a decay correction for that. So now uh, what we have in there is, say, eight and a half millicuries. We drop that source in there, and we should have within 5% of that eight and a half millicuries uh, for today's test. If it's more than that, then, then, the, then it needs to be taken out of service and, and fixed. So we're just comparing a decay corrected known source to the actual reading that we get in the dose calibrator. Geometry test. A geometry test by, by regulation should be performed at installation. And you have to be careful with this one because I think it's very misleading. It says installation. Well, what is there to installing a dose calibrator? Well, it's basically plugging it in. So if you rearrange your hot lab and it's on this side of the room and the state comes to inspect you next year and it's on the other side of the room, you reinstalled your dose calibrator. So it needs to be, have a geometry test reported. So again, that's misleading and I have seen labs be cited for that and um, so again if any time that the dose calibrator is moved or basically unplugged and plugged back in it needs to be repeated but it's it's a fairly simple test we're just assessing the accuracy of the dose calibrator to measure consistent activity in different volumes so we have five millicuries of activity and it's in 0.2 mls uh, of volume we measure that we should have five mls we come back, we add another half a cc. So now we have 
0.7 mLs of, of, of volume still are five millicuries. When we drop it in, it should still read five millicuries. Then we add increments up to, you know, one, one ml, five mLs, 10 mLs. You basically want to cover the range of anything that you're going to put in the dose calibrator. So what's the smallest amount of volume you're going to measure for patient doses? Which is the largest? Are you ever going to measure a vial of radioactivity that may be up to, say, 20 mLs? But you want to just measure that same amount of activity by keep adding saline and making sure that you're getting readings within 5% of one another, regardless of what the volume is. Constancy test. Constancy test is very much like the accuracy test, but it's something that we are actually going to perform on a daily basis. And we use those same sources. So we use that cobalt 130, or I'm sorry, that cesium 137 source. And we're basically measuring that cesium 137 source daily. We can check it on cesium 137, but what the constancy, constancy test dictates is that we want to also measure that cesium-137 source on all of the buttons that we typically use. So if you use you're going to use technesium in your lab, you want to put the cesium in and measure the technesium. You want to leave it in there and now you want to measure it on thallium. Leave it in there and measure it on I-123. And so you're not measuring the cesium, but you're seeing what measurement you get as you use the different buttons that are used on a daily basis in your lab. Uh, so here's an example of those readings. Um, cesium-137 on Monday, you got 123. You got 124 on Tuesday. All of these readings should be within 5% of one another. And obviously, they're not going to change very much because this is a, a source that has a 30-year half-life. So the decay is going to be negligible from day to day. So you measure it on all the common buttons that are used in your lab, and again, they should be within 5%. And again, that's a daily test that we will perform. Constancy is daily. The last test performed on the dose calibrator is a quarterly test, is a linearity test. And it is um, basically tests the ability to read both high and low levels of activity. Just like we did that geometry test, we want that geometry test to cover all ranges of volumes that we're going to measure in our dose calibrator. Same thing with the linearity test. We want to cover all ranges of radioactivity that we're going to drop into that dose calibrator. You know, are we going to use things just from microcuries that we might be using for quality control all the way up to 30 or 40 millicurie doses of technesium that we're going to be using for patient studies. Um, so there's two ways to do a linearity test. One is very long. Um, it takes about three days to do it. The other way to do it is using a sleeve method that requires uh, you to own or have access to our lead sleeves that, that simulate the decay. So the real way to do this is as a decay method. So you are going to start out with a high um, amount of activity of, of a short half-life radiopharmaceutical, so pretty much all the time we use technesium. So you have 300 millicuries of technesium, and you put it in the dose calibrator. Uh, initially, you have 300 millicuries. So you measure that an hour later, and doing a decay uh, correction, you expect it to would be 267 millicuries. You measure it, um, should be 272, you know, you get 272 millicuries, but it's within 5%, so you're fine. And this carries all the way out to, to you, at least till you get to the lowest amount of activity that you would put in your dose calibrator. So you want to get it down to probably less than a millicury, because millicury amounts would be me uh, measured for center of rotation tests, for example. So you want to go all the way out and, and you know, starting at 300 
uh, you know, you can get away with starting at 100 if you're just using unit doses and, and cut this down to a two-day study, but it's pretty lengthy. And really, it's very hard to get this within 5% if you are taking that source out and putting it back in. So typically what we do is when we get a new dose calibrator, we will do it, the, do it this way, and we'll put that source in there and we don't take it out. It basically sits there for three days and we don't disturb it because you put it in and it's not at the exact same spot. It's hard to get the same reading and get this to pass if it keeps being taken in and out. But anyhow, we do it this way the first time and then after that we actually do have these sleeves. And, when, and the way these work is you have that same source of 300 millicuries of technesium and what you do is actually grab this sleeve that simulates six hours and you put it uh, down in the chamber over, you know, with the source inside of it. That simulates six hours of decay. Then you grab the next one and it fits over top of the first sleeve. So it makes the lead thicker, it simulates 12 hours of decay, and so on, all the way up to it simulates three days worth of decay. Um, so it turns this three-day test into about 10 or 15 minutes. Uh, so again, there's two methods. One is just a simple decay method. One is the sleeve method that requires you to have these lead sleeves. Now, what's interesting is if you look at the NRC regulations, um, you know, without boring you and reading all this, and it will be in, in, in the slides that you have, but basically says if you have a dose calibrator, and we skip down to B here, it says, a licensee shall calibrate the instrumentation required in paragraph A, which was the dose calibrator we're using to measure doses, of this section in accordance with nationally recognized standards. Well, that's those tests we just talked about the constancy, the accuracy, the geometry, and the linearity, or the manufacturer's recommendations. Now, what the, this just came out uh, within the last year and a half or so. So this does give you know, manufacturers the option to put in their user guidelines that you don't need to do these things. But I don't know of any manufacturers that have done that yet. But to this point, we are all required to do all of those tests. But that could the reason I want to put this in is that could change in the future. Uh, but again, the NRC says that your state regulations um, most, you know, often are going to be a little more strict than the NRC. So, you know, don't just go by the NRC. If you're an agreement state, you need to do what the state says. Um, in closing, you know, these aren't the only things that we have to do quality control testing. If you have glucometers in your lab, you know, other places such as the JCAHO are going to say that we need to do daily calibration and accuracy testing on those. Uh, likewise with, with defibrillators that are in our nuclear cardiology labs. You know, it's required when we have inspections, not from our regulatory agencies for the NRC or the state, but JCAH wants to see that we do a battery test and a voltage test, not just every day, but every different shift um, that, that that's in the hospital if you're using it, if you're in a hospital lab. So lots of other things that we have to do quality control testing on but as i said at the very beginning when i got started you know we do these things on on uh uh, set schedules basically, but any of these things, you know, all these problems don't happen overnight, so we're not going to catch them when we do this testing the next morning. Uh, it can be fine in the morning and it can be go bad, so it's where it's very important, obviously, to look at the raw data of acquired studies and make sure that we don't see things that just don't look right. Uh, when we get suspicious, then, then we need to repeat these, um, um, you know, any of these tests following our suspicions to confirm that we really do have a quality control issue. So thanks a lot for your attention. What we're going to do now is, is uh, adjourn for lunch, and we're going to have a working lunch today. So we're going to give about 15 minutes. Uh, we're going to come back here in 15 minutes, and we will do our exam review and question and answer session at that time. So thanks a lot for your attention. See you in 15 minutes.